0: You know, as uh, we consider what the Bible, the many teachings of the scriptures, one of the things that the Bible does do is it does hold the military in many ways and present it in a a good light. Because there are things that are that happen in the military that do align themselves with the things that we see in the scriptures. And and we're going to see a little bit of that today. We're going to be going through and we're going to meet a man today that was a military man. He was, a, he was a fighting man. He was a man of war. But he also is an example to us of what faith looks like. And, and, and it's an interesting, I hope it fits today into this weekend, and it also fits into your lives. But I also recognize this. The majority of the people in this room, myself included, did not serve in the military. We, we, you know, and, and in that group, there is a, a camaraderie that they basically will tell you, you just can't understand it because you haven't been there. And and I get that, and and I understand that. But at the same time, I want you to understand that we, as the family of God, are also have been inducted, have been brought into this, this group, this fraternity, this people, that we are all in a battle ourselves. And when you think about it, it's probably one of the most significant battles there could possibly be, because it is the battle for the soul. It's a battle for the souls, which are eternal which are valuable, that that every soul is important. And and so in this battle for the soul, in this battle of faith you and I are in, I think we're going to learn some valuable lessons about this faith and about fighting the good fight of faith that Paul talks about and we learn about in the scriptures. And so we're going to dive in. We're going to look at verses 5 through 13 of the Gospel of Matthew because I just... Really, as I was kind of praying when Pastor Manny invited me to come, it's like what to share. And I thought because it's Veterans Day, we're gonna we're gonna bring this military man and we're gonna learn some things about our own faith and our own battle in the faith from him, as he's recorded in the scriptures. So verses five through seven. Three sections we're gonna look at today, but here we're gonna see how desperation meets compassion. Verse five. Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed and dreadfully tormented. And so we meet this man. He's what's called a centurion. Sounds like the word century that we use because it's related to the idea of a hundred. He was a a commander that was over a hundred men. And as a, a commander over 100 men, you got to consider that there's got to be some discipline there. There's got to be authority there. There's got to be a sense of control there that this man is used to having. I mean, he's he's overseeing 100 people, which is a lot, 100 soldiers. And, and this centurion, in fact, centurions in general, because I think of their their, as we're going to see, some of their qualities, they're spoken of rather highly in the scriptures. Four times they're mentioned, four times they're, you know, cast in a positive light. And so here we have this centurion, this, this fighting man, this man of war, but he was also desperate. You can see there's this desperation. You can hear it in his request, in his voice, because he's got this, this servant who is sick. And, and from the descriptions that we see that he says, we can tell he cares about him. He, he was a man that had a heart he says this this servant of mine is sick he's being tormented and and in that you kind of sense he's being tormented a little bit himself and and so he's in this situation where you know it's it's a desperate moment, and just I know it's no bulletin for any of us, but desperate moments happen in all our lives we We hit these seasons, these patches these these chapters of our lives that just seem really desperate and and in desperation we, we we feel helpless we feel uncertain you know you just you feel in fact it can even get to the point for some people of being hopeless but for you and i as believers i want you to understand something and i think this is really important as we approach these these moments that that are coming if we're not in it already helplessness does not have to mean hopelessness. Just because we feel like there's nothing I can't do or nothing I can do doesn't mean I've given up all hope and and all is lost because that is certainly not the case. See, these moments of helplessness are going to hit us all, but how we handle those moments is really the defining thing in our lives. How are we going to handle moments where I just feel like you know what? I I don't know what to do. I don't have anything to offer. I can't add anything. I can't fix this. And and those are the moments that can be so frustrating because we do feel helpless, but not hopeless. These moments come. A lot of you guys at the men's retreat know that, you know, this has kind of been going on in my own life for really the last month. It's been interesting. This last year has been a great season for myself and my wife. And the reason why it's been such a great season is we've reached a new place in our life. A new a new a new level, if you will. And it's it's awesome, it's glorious. It's called grandparenthood. <laughs> and let me tell you something, grandparenthood is incredibly awesome. Way better than parenting. <laughs> Way better than parenting in fact. Pastor Chuck used to say, you know, Grandchildren are the reward you get for not killing your own kids, <laughs> and and I have to agree with him. It is just a a sweet, sweet thing that the love that you can have for these these little people is like like nothing else you could ever imagine. And, and so, for me, it's been tough, and for our family, it's tough because, as you guys in the retreat know, that that my we have one that's coming becoming a year old in in next month, so she's almost a year. that's our first one. And our second one came five weeks ago. Our, my son had his first kid, and I've got a, a, a new grandson named Joshua. And, and it's, it's, you, you parents, I can see the, I can see the faces of the grandparents because you got this silly smile that, that I have all the time. Now you're like, yeah, they're great. They're awesome. But little Joshua, you know, on the, on my daughter-in-law's kind of final doctor's appointment before the baby was to be born, they sent something that was a little bit off. There was a weight gain they did a, they did a, um, ultrasound and and they could tell that there was something not right with the baby they could tell he was gaining weight he was growing unusually fast and what they found is he had a blockage in fact trying to be three blockages in his intestines and as you can imagine if your intestines are blocked you can't pass anything through like you're supposed to and so his little belly and his body was just growing like it's not supposed to and so they they induced the labor. They got the baby out early. And so within 12 hours of him being born, he was on the operating table himself. And, and so this little guy um, who has been, you know, I mean, as a grandparent, you know, he's, he, he's loved. He was loved the moment I found out he was coming. He's loved. Is is never been out of the ICU. He spent the first five weeks of his life in, a, in the intensive care unit, so my my son and, and, and daughter are going to see him daily and and, and I am so proud of them. they're handling this thing in faith, but but those those helpless moments happen for us, don't they? And, and all of you, I could tell by just your your, your nonverbal is you're like, "We get it, Pastor Ray, because we, we've been through not the exact thing, but we know what it's like to be in those situations where it's like, "What do you do?" what do you do in that and and it's not hopeless and praise the lord that little guy joshua is improving day by day you know the first five days were just is everything gonna stay together it's gonna is is this operation gonna you know stay intact and then the next two weeks were are the the organs that have been repaired are going to start working like they're supposed to and, and and now it's just monitoring making sure everything's working the way it, and so lord willing you know sometime soon he's going to come out and and you know it's it's a it's like we're just waiting but we're waiting like we all do in hope and so we get it and, and so here's this guy this centurion And he's in this helpless situation. But here's where the man of war meets the Prince of Peace. Here's where the the Gentile meets the Jew. Here's where this guy with power and authority meets this carpenter from Nazareth. And it's so interesting what happens. Now, what we don't see here in Matthew, but we learn from the the same telling of this event in Luke, is that he doesn't go himself at first. He doesn't meet Jesus face to face, but we have this recording of the message that he sent through the elders, the Jewish elders in the city of Capernaum, where he was stationed. And so he tells the elders of the city would you please go talk? I've, I've heard about this Jesus. Can you, can you please go to him and request that he heals my servant? And, and so this guy doesn't understand. Well, he doesn't understand Jesus because he doesn't understand how willing Jesus would have been to talk to him and to minister to him. He, and we're going to see why. But, but he doesn't understand the openness Jesus has to him. It's like, send somebody else, and, and you know what? He'll listen to you, but he won't listen to me. And, and I, in that, I see a lot of us in that. Sometimes it's like, hey, you know what? I'm going to get somebody to pray for me because I don't know if God is going to listen to me. So, so you're pretty spiritual. You've got your, your Bible on, and you've got your Jesus on. So, so can you go talk to the Lord for me? And there's nothing wrong with that. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying don't ask for prayer. But I want you to understand something, that the Lord does want to hear from you. He he is not saying, you know, I I won't listen to you, but if you send somebody else, I might consider it. That's not the Lord. Whatever you're going through, He is waiting and inviting you to come to Him. In fact, Hebrews tells us that we can approach His throne boldly. It's like you've got an open invitation to come to God yourself. And so between the prayers of other people, between the prayers that you have, I want you to know that the Lord wants to meet you. First Timothy 2, five says this, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So you want to reach God, you go to Jesus personally, and he's welcoming you. He's ready to hear from you. He loves you. You can come to him humility, with humility. You can come to him in faith, and I assure you, he says, those who come to me, I'm not going to cast out. So he, he makes this request, and in verse 7, what do we see? Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. And so Jesus, gracious as he always is, makes himself available to come and minister to that situation, to heal that servant. Now, understand, Jesus is a Jew who's got this request from a Gentile. And he says, yeah, I will go. And this was kind of like a social, uh uh-uh. It's not supposed to happen that way. Social faux pas, if you will. But here is Jesus. And would he have gone into that home of that centurion? I believe he would. He was already on his way. He already agreed to go. And so Jesus crosses the barrier that we need to learn to cross. If you were to set chapter 8 into its kind of its setting, its context, Chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew, Jesus has just finished giving what? Do you remember? The Sermon on the the Mount. Yeah. Chapter 5, 6, and 7 were like the, this was like the the go-to, you know, top shelf teaching that Jesus, I mean, you will not find a better presentation of faith and life and sanity than you will in the Sermon on the Mount. It's just like pure gold but after giving this teaching he shows up in capernaum he receives this request and and he's so willing to just go and minister to this this guy that in many jewish minds would be an outcast because jesus understands something that i want to understand for myself and that is it's not just teaching but it's touching people it's not just giving them the right information but it's actually kind of being the, 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 the hands, if you will, and the feet of the Lord, meeting people in a way that they, they need to be met. You know, uh, when I think about how we can touch people, I think it's challenging because sometimes we see situations where we go, man, what am I supposed to do? How can I help that, that person in this situation? But you'd be surprised what you can do by doing very little. When I think of guys that come along and really help people out, I think of Job's friends. Now, you know the story of Job, this guy that lost everything. And he's sitting there on a pile of ashes, just, you know, bodies breaking out in boils. He's lost his kids. He's lost his business. And his friends come a long way. And what do they do at first? They just come and for like a week, they just sit with him. They sit with him in in grief and in sadness and support. And things were great for Job's friends until they started talking. Once they started talking, things went wrong. But until that point, they were like really good friends. And, And I want to tell you something. That's something just about any of us can do. We can go to some person and a person that's hurting and do something simple. Just sit with them. Just, just be there with them. You don't have to talk. You can just pray silently. You just let them know you're there, and it doesn't have to be for a week. Sometimes it can be for fifteen minutes or an hour. But I found that to be true that you know it's not the things that you say, but just sometimes your presence with them that makes all the difference. I had a a friend. I was teaching a Bible study in his house for for several years, and at one point, this guy's father passes away. Like what happens to you know so many of us, we have a loss. And the Lord just put it on my heart to do what Job's friends did before they started talking. I I just went and sat with him, and, and he tried to be a host. And, hey, can I get? It's like I don't need anything. I don't want anything. I just want to sit here with you. And and I sat there for I don't know how long. I was maybe a few hours, and it was it. It was done. And then we went on with life. The next week we started teaching again. The Bible study kept on going, and 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 it was years later that this guy comes to me and he just out of the blue hugs me and says, you know, that day that you came and sat with me, it meant so much. I'll never forget it. I didn't have to say anything. I didn't have to do anything, but just sit there. And folks, most of us are pretty good at just sitting around. So we can do that. You can just go and sit with people in that season. And and so here's Jesus. He's Not just teaching people, he's touching people, he's blessing them. That's where we see this desperate situation met by compassion. Now, in verses 8 and 9, we move on because now we see where faith meets authority. Take a look at verse 8. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should not come under my roof. Now, this is an interesting thing that this guy says. He understands the fact that, you know, I'm really not worthy of you, Jesus, coming in to my house. And so he has this understanding of who Jesus is and who he is in light of that, where he just is convinced, you know, I shouldn't have you in my house now. Again, the same story, Gospel of Luke. Something interesting happens because this guy goes to the elders and he says, hey, can you go ask Jesus to, to heal my, my servant because I don't think I should, I don't have any business talking to him, but you know, you guys are kind of on the same page, and so can you do this? And, and they go. A- and what they tell Jesus is interesting because they, they go to Jesus and say, you know, this guy's asking for your servant, his servant to be healed, and you should do it. And the reason why is because he loves our nation. He's even built us a synagogue. He's built us this place of worship. He's a good guy. And so if you're going to heal anyone, Jesus, this is the guy to heal. This is the guy to help. And, and, and I say that, I, I bring that up because... Here's this guy that had a, the centurion had a genuine humility. And I find that humility and a noble character often go hand in hand. Where where a person with a noble character, they don't even realize it, but they have this genuine, genuine humility. Somebody writes this about humility. I believe the first test of a truly great man is his humility. And I do not mean by humility, doubt of his own power or hesitation in speaking his opinion. But really great men have a sense, a feeling, an understanding that the greatness is not in them, but through them. That they could not be anything else than God made them. In other words, the, the truly humble person is not this person that You know, I I call it false humility. There's people that just, they seem to put themselves down. They walk and go, I'm dumb, I'm stupid, I'm ugly, I'm all these things. And and they say that, I kind of wonder, is that false humility in some way to incite a compliment? Because if you walk around saying it enough, oh, I'm dumb. Oh, no, you're not dumb. You're smart. (laughs) I'm ugly. Oh, no, you're not ugly. You're good looking. And, And you say all these things to... Put yourself down with the, the, the hope that somebody will come around on the other side and say, oh, no, you're the opposite, and that, you're getting complimented. That's not humility. That's mental illness, okay? <laughs> that's, that's, that's not right. But the idea that, you know, you're, you're walking through this life understanding that, you know, whatever is going on in my life, that is good. It's because the Lord is in it. And the Lord is doing it. And, and it's really Him. I, I read a, a story about Alex Haley. He's a guy that wrote a series of books called Roots back in, in the day. And it became this huge series, very popular in his day. And so in his office, he has this, this picture of a post, you know, just a, a pole out of the ground. And on top of that post, there's a turtle sitting on top of it. And, and the caption of this picture is. If you see a turtle on the post, understand that he got some help. Okay, in other words, that that turtle didn't climb up that post on his own, set himself up there, the turtle just couldn't do it. Somebody helped him get there. And I thought, that's really true. We should all think of ourselves as a turtle on a post. Where if at some moment you want to think, man, look at all that I've done, look what I've accomplished, look at this. Just understand, just say, you're a turtle on a post. And that's all we are. And this guy kind of got that. He understood that, you know, I, I, I'm not all that. I, I'm just this guy that is, is, you know, trying to make it through and I, I need some help. And so his estimation of himself was low. But what I find it's so often true is the person that has the low estimation of themselves have a high estimation in the eyes of other people. I've I've just been amazed by that over the years. The person that thinks lowly of themselves, other people go, "No, man, that person generally is pretty amazing." And I don't again, don't reverse psychology that. And go, well, I I want people to think of love, so I'm going to think, no, don't do that. But just understand that the person that's walking in humility that doesn't think about themselves, because I think that's what humility is. It's just not thinking about yourself. I think one day you'll be surprised at what other people esteem you as. And he's, again, that guy. So he says, you know, don't come to my house, Lord. And the reason why he says that is what he continues to say in verse 8. Verse 8 again, the centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go. And he goes. And another one, come. And he comes. And to my servant, do this. And he does it. And so what we see about this centurion and why he could say, Jesus, you don't even have to come to my house, is this centurion had this understanding that is kind of part of the nature of the military. This understanding of chain of command. This understanding of what authority structure looks like, where where you have a person in authority and that authority is obeyed, and he knew that. He knew that for me as a, a, a an officer, if you will, a person in authority, when I give an order, I can expect that order to be followed through with. It's just the way it works, and, and so his understanding of a third authority was good. And, and you know, in. Any group, not just the military, but any group, you know, you're going to have multiple different kinds of people. You're going to have the grunts; they are just under authority. They do whatever they're told, and that's all they ever do. It's like you do this, and they do it. They have no authority. And then you have the tyrants. The tyrants on the other side, they're not under any authority. They they don't. Nobody tells them what to do. But men like this Roman centurion are, are in the middle. They are over people with authority, but they also understand that I'm also under authority. And when a person, and that's a good leadership principle, actually, that if God has given you authority over anything or anyone, understand that, yes, you have authority, and you have to use that wisely and godly, but understand you do that because you have authority over you. That no matter who you are, you always have a higher authority to answer to. And, and, and so this is what this Roman centurion was. He understood that, you know what, I have authority, but I also am under authority. But as a person in authority, when I ask something to be done, it gets done. And then he transfers it over and he says, because of my understanding of authority, I recognize Jesus as the ultimate authority. And so anything that the ultimate authority asks to be done, he knows it's going to happen. And that's where this centurion is at. That's one of the reasons why he is held up here in Scripture as is an example, as a model, because he could transfer his uh, understanding of authority to Jesus who was over all, and in the same way he would expect his own commands to be carried out, he says, Jesus, if you just give the command, if you just say the word, I know my servant will be healed. But that's that's... Pretty good. And and so we need to, in the same way as this Roman centurion, who just understands the authority of Jesus, we need to take that same authority of Jesus and bring people to that. And say, you know, we we need you to meet the Lord. Because when we will submit ourselves to Him, He's the one that brings healing. He's the one that brings life. He's the one that makes things different. It's not our own strength. It's not our own power. It's not our own ability. It's not the ability that we have to control other people, but it's just bringing them under submission to the Lord. And when that happens, it's a beautiful thing. When it's not happening, it's really hard to watch because there are people, and you've had people like this, perhaps in your life. I've had people like this in my life where they think it's their duty to control you, to, to like. I'm going to straighten your life out. I'll tell you how you're supposed to live. Tell, and they just kind of, and it never works, because especially before I was saved, man, I was so rebellious. It's like, you tell me something to do, I'll do the opposite, because that's just human nature. You're fighting against human nature. And that's why trying to control people doesn't work. And even trying to control ourselves, some of us have looked at ourselves, and man, I don't like this. I'm just going to fix myself. I'm going to make it better. I'm going to just... Make it right. And how many of you know the frustration of trying to do that? And, and just failing and failing and failing. But man, when we finally bring ourselves under submission to the Lord, it's like, okay, Lord, I ain't got much. But if you will take this rotten little sinner that I am and start working in me, it's like, it's amazing what, and really, I know I'm sitting in a room full of people that know what that's about. Because I mean, how many of you before you're saved would have ever dreamed you would be sitting here on a Sunday morning in Calvary Chapel, El Monte? How many of you, you know, it's a miracle, right? That you're sitting here right now. Like there were seasons in my life. It's like, this is the last place on earth. I thought I would be listening to the Chino from Santa Fe Springs (laughs) who drove up the freeway to come and share with us. That wouldn't be happening. But look at you. Here you are. The Lord has done this because it's the, the power of God working. And it's a glorious thing because all throughout California, the United States, the world, there are people gathering on a day like today, and it's a miracle. Every one of us is like a walk of miracle that it's happening. It's so cool. So we've got this guy, and, and he his, his authority and his faith, Faith have come together and so now verse 10 we see kind of the result of that verse 10 when jesus heard it he marveled now just stop and think about that for a second how many times in the bible do you see jesus go wow how many times can you think of in reading the Gospels that you think, you see Jesus going, wow, that blows my mind. I'm, I'm marveling at that. I'm like awestruck. I'm blown away. How many times? It does happen, but it's just super rare. It's very unusual to see Jesus marvel. Think of just two times. Number one. Number one time that we see Jesus marvel. I'm going to have you turn... Hold your spot here, we'll come back. But turn over the Gospel of Mark. A couple books over. Mark 6. Mark 6, Jesus has gone back to his hometown, city of Nazareth. And there in the city of Nazareth, there's obviously a lot of needs there, opportunities to minister to people there for sure. But in verse 3, this is what the people say. Mark 6, 3 Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? See, he had brothers and sisters. So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, in his own house. Now he could not do Or he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And here it is, verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the village in a circuit teaching. And so one of the two instances we see where Jesus goes, wow, it's a sad one. Because he returns to his own home, his own people, his own friends, family, neighbors, and it's like, oh, that's just Jesus. You know, we know his brother, Jose, and Simon, you know, and, and so it says there was unbelief there, and he could not do the things that he desired to do. And and in that he just goes, Wow. Just wow. Like not a good wow. It's a bad wow that, that there is so much he wanted to do, but he couldn't do it because of their unbelief. And so one of the things that causes Jesus to like marvel, if you will, is the unbelief of people. sometimes the people that should know better, the people that should know and have known him well. And yet they choose not to believe, they walk in unbelief, and he just goes, "Wow." But the other one is the one that we're back at Matthew 8. So why don't we turn back there if you're not back there already. Because the other wow is this Roman centurion. Where in verse 10 it says, when Jesus heard it, when he heard this, his perspective on faith and authority, when he heard what this guy said, he marveled and said to those who followed him, assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And in this, it's like a, this is a really good wow. This is like Jesus going, when he hears this, he hears, and he's not like surprised, like he didn't know what this guy said. The wow was because of the, the unusual character, the rarity of a of, of faith that he is seeing right here. Of just saying, "I understand authority, I understand when when I say something, it happens, and if God says something, it's going to happen, it's just the way it is. He's, he just sits back and goes, "Wow, I marvel at that I, I, I'm amazed at that 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 this guy exhibits this kind of faith, and so Jesus marvels at two things: He marvels at unbelief. And he marvels at great faith. And the question that I have for us is, which one are we going to be? Are we going to be causing Jesus to marvel at our unbelief? Like, man, I wanted to do so much, but you just didn't believe me. Like, wow. Or are we going to cause him to marvel? Because it's like, here's a person that hears what I'm saying, and here's what I promise to do, and they just trust me in that. Wow, that's awesome. See, a great faith is something that causes Jesus to marvel. I want to pause for a second, turn over to the book of James real quick. And I want to take a look at what this kind of faith looks like. And so James chapter 1, verse 6. James chapter 1, verse 6 through 8 is... James is really a book of faith. It's such a good book. So practical. But James chapter 1, verse 6, But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. For he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And so in describing what faith is supposed to look like and what it's not supposed to look like, he says faith should basically be unwavering. It should be like, you know, you, 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 you place your faith in the Lord and, and it's like that's where I've kind of put my anchor. That's where I put the line in the sand and said this is, this is what it's going to be. And I'm not going any way. Because if you do less than that, he says, you're a double-minded man. I think about a double-minded man as a person that it's like, and we can be this way. It's like, I trust the Lord. I don't trust the Lord. I trust the Lord. I don't trust. I trust the Lord, but I got a great backup plan. If the Lord doesn't come through, I got it figured out already. And and we can be like that. But he says, man, it's just a great, great day. When you say, man, I'm just really trusting the Lord. No escape plan whatsoever and so going back to matthew we're going to kind of go down the home stretch here verse 11 and 12 here we see that this roman centurion's faith becomes if you will the example the model of what faith is supposed to look like verse 11 and i say to you that many will come from the east and the west and sit down with abraham isaac and jacob in the kingdom of heaven But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out and cast into outer darkness, and there will be weeping and there will be gnashing of teeth. And so it's interesting that Jesus brings this up now. He he sees the faith of this Roman centurion. He's amazed by it, and he says this. He says, you know, there's going to be people coming from the east and the west, and what's going to happen is they're going to be seated at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's like the, you, I don't know if you grew up in a, a house at some time where it's like there was the, the grown-up table and the kids' table. And and at one point, maybe you got graduated up to the, the, the big table, but you know if you were a little punk, you just ended up in the little table all the time. And, and what he's saying is there's going to be people that come from the east and the west. These are the Gentiles. These are the non-Jews. And he says, they're going to come and they're going to be seated with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're going to be seated at the big table. Well, there's going to be people that are that are the Israelites. They're going to be sons of the kingdom and they're not going to make it in. And what's he teaching us? He's teaching us that it's faith, not heritage, that will get you into the kingdom. You, you can't be born naturally into the kingdom of heaven. You need to be born again to get into the kingdom of heaven. You can't You can't ride the faith of someone else into the kingdom and i know there's people to do that there's people like well hey man you're here in church yeah my wife my wife made me come or yeah i just come with my husband but you know that's just his thing i'm just spending time i'm just supporting him but it's not your own a- and that faith has to be your own you know it's said that that god has a lot of children many children but he doesn't have any grandchildren you you can't be kind of brought in through the faith of somebody else into the kingdom and so here he's saying that the people that are i love this about the lord i'll say this he saves sometimes the most unlikely people the people you're like have you ever had somebody in church like i never thought you'd get saved Maybe you are that person that people looked at you that I never thought you'd get saved. I, I just never believed it would happen. But look at you. You're, you're as saved as you can be right now. It just seems like the Lord does that. Not that, well, I won't go into all the theology of, you know, election. But it's just, it's like the Lord just saves people. And we've got this room full of people that can say, yeah, I know it's pretty miraculous that he saved me. It's a miracle that I'm here. But he saves the, the unlikely. I mean, if you think what's happening here, he's just held up this Roman centurion as the model of faith. He, the, he He's the model of the guy that's going to be seated with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And think about all that he has against him. He is a Gentile, not a Jew. And the Jewish mind, Gentiles are only good for feeding the fires of hell. I mean, they're not going to be saved, so strike 1 you're a gentile not only is he a gentile but he is a roman gentile as a roman he is part of that 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 country that that nation that is oppressing the jews you're like you're the ones that are holding us down and occupying us strike 2 not only are you a gentile and a roman but you are a gentile roman military guy You're part of the force that is part of the nation that is keeping us down. Strike three. You're out. And then the Lord holds this guy up and says, Here's the guy that is an example of what it is to be a person of faith. I mean, the faith is what made all the difference. All the other things, the heritage, where he was born, what he was born like. I love that about faith. I think it's really a, a sweet thing that the Lord made the kingdom of heaven accessible to people by faith, not money, not power, not influence, not looks. Because think about it. What if he said, you know, the kingdom of heaven will be available to all the people that makes 100,000 and above. Oh, we're in trouble. Or the kingdom of heaven is for people that have a really high IQ, like Pastor A. You have to be above 65. You know, you have to be a genius. He doesn't do any of that. He, he just says, hey, listen, if you can just believe, if you can, if you can place your faith in me, then you can make it. And so basically he's taken the common denominator and said, I'm going to make it accessible to everyone. That anyone that can just place their faith in me can make it. And, And in fact, that's interesting. The things that I mentioned, you know, the money, the power, the intellect, some things, these things actually can work against people's faith. When it's the simplicity of just saying, hey, you know, I trust you. Kids, Children are held up as examples of what it is to trust God for good reason. Man, kids have an easier time believing God than we adults do sometimes. Heard a pretty cool story about a little guy. He was in his bedroom. There was this just wicked thunder, lightning storm going on. You know, lightning is flashing, thunder is cracking and his mom was kind of a little concerned about he might be scared and fearful, and so she went in to check up on him. And she peeks his her head into his room, and, and she sees him, and he's standing at the window with the blinds pushed to the side. And he's just standing there, and, and, and she says, Sonny, what are you doing? And he says, be still, Mom. God's trying to take my picture. <laughs> I thought, that's the way it should be, you know, just this this you know i just god's good uh, why do i need to be afraid god is good and, and so we see in this faith is the thing and so wrapping it up home stretch, verse 13 then jesus said it to the centurion go your way as you have believed so let it be done for you and a servant was healed that same hour And so I like that word, as you have believed, so let it be. God meets us in the arena of faith. That's where he meets you and I. He meets us in the arena where it's like, can you trust me? Yes, I trust you. Let's meet there. That's a good place. That's a, a powerful place. And so he says, as you have believed, so let it be done to you. And so why don't you close up your Bibles? We're pretty much wrapped up here. My hope for us today is that we will walk out of this place believing God in a greater way and for greater things than we have before. That we will trust Him. We will believe Him for great things. We will trust Him in the midst of the things that we feel helpless about. And that we will cause Him to marvel We will blow his mind with the way that we trust him. That we just, it's like, I trust you. I trust in God. It's a wonderful thing.